Welcome to the Take 92 Podcast. This is Sammy Warmhands. I am your host. And today we're going to do what we do at the end of the year, and that is break down all of our favorite albums that came out in 2017. And I'm recording this here on New Year's Eve. This is going to drop here in the morning of the second. But uh, yeah, I just thought it would be a good opportunity to look back on some things that made our lives better this year and shout out the other artists that I enjoy. So to begin, and I did this last year as well, with, I'm going to give you the top 10, but I also feel like there's a lot of good music out there and I would be remiss if I didn't mention some of the others that I still enjoyed that maybe weren't the best of the best. And I'll admit that Two weeks ago when I started thinking about this, I wasn't really sure that I even had a top 10 this year because the majority of the music I bought, I feel like, and, and this is a direct result of being on the road a lot more often, is used. I was going to record stores in different cities and you know you dig through their used bins and see what you can find. And sometimes there's a lot like on this uh, blank check tour with dead fucking serious that we did this summer. If I had known that the van was going to break down at the end of that tour and that the van was going to break down again, six weeks later on the fall children tour, I would have probably not gone as hard, but honestly, I probably spent like $200 and just used CDs on that one fucking tour, man. And, uh, I, I blame this mostly on, besides my lack of willpower in a record store, but um, beyond that, my old iPod that I used to just always have wired into the van and I could control it from the deck and play all my old favorite albums. I think it was through like 2011 or 12 was the last time it was updated. And that thing's been dead for a while. So, you know, some of these long drives, you know, I only brought so many CDs and uh, I'm not one of those streaming guys, but even to the other people who are in the van who are, you know, we tried this on the Fall Children Tour, Lisa and, and Gradient would be playing some shit off their Spotify or something and it doesn't work everywhere, you know. They'd be talking about somebody, I'd be like, oh, you got any Amy Winehouse? Oh, yeah, we can get Amy Winehouse. Like, oh, but there's no signal here in the middle of fucking montana sorry so even if i wanted that as an alternative it didn't always work out and so uh i don't know man i just i was lucky to find a bunch of shit that i have uh, always hoped to find you know i found much the same which is a hard to find nitro records band a melodic punk band from i don't know maybe 10 years ago their shit came out and uh uh, towards the tail end of DFS, you know, before we went on hiatus, I, I was really into that band. Um, our guitarist, Ben Polanski, played them a lot. And this was the first time I actually found that uh, album in, in person at a record store, even when that shit was out at the time. So that was cool find. I mean, I've, uh, I don't want to list all the random old records I found, but I will say from the top that my favorite thing that I got this year was not something that came out this year. Um, Fat Records released a No Use for a Name compilation, and it was of cover songs that they did. 
And if you're not familiar, No Use for a Name is, well, first of all, Fat Records is No Effects' label. And I would say they're the second most prominent independent uh, punk label of all time, right next to Epitaph. And they just had a great roster from the beginning, and No Use for a Name was one of those great bands. Just uh, fast, melodic, catchy, but still aggressive, you know, kind of skate punk. And Tony Sly was their front man, and, and he was just an amazing songwriter. And over the years, he got better and better as a singer and a front man as well. And he died in, I think, 2012. It's, um, it's been a few years now. And their, their very last album was in 2008. So nine years after the last No Use for a Name album, Fat Wreck puts out a compilation of cover songs. And they're all studio versions, so they sound pretty good. And they're from all different eras of the band. And it was cool to hear. But honestly, it, you know, it's kind of a, a collection of odds and ends. And they are from all different eras of the bands. So the recordings and the styles fluctuate. And you know, it's, it's, it's cool to hear. I'm glad that I bought it, but it's not an album I want to play all the time. That said, I went to uh, Fat Records when we were on the Blank Check Tour with DFS. They had like a pop-up shop day where fans could come into the the label and, and buy from their little miniature record store thing that they set up. And I went through all their music hoping to find some Tony Sly solo work. And they didn't have any. And then um, like many, many years ago, probably 2004, I had this split CD he did with Joey Cape from Lagwagon. And they were both playing their own band's songs, just acoustic versions. And it was really good. But um, I had heard after he died that he also recorded some full-length solo albums of all original, all new material, not from the band. And I'd never seen him anywhere. And I thought, well, shit, we're here. Let's... Let's look for that. Didn't have it. And so I asked the woman who's working the uh, register. And she went to the back and pulled out two full-length Tony Sly albums. And, man, just I put on one on the way out that day when we were driving to Gilman Street for the show. And I put on another one the next day. And those two albums are so just devastatingly sad and they really show you another side of this guy who was really hurting and they really really connected with me on a deep level and when we were when we were listening to it in the van I even um was like getting misty in the car and then when it was over uh, a few minutes later I just I just started crying while I'm driving and we we at uh, the next um, truck stop, you know, where we stopped to get gas. You know, I gave Crosby and Kellen big hugs, and I was just, I don't know, man, something came over me. It was, I think, the the familiarity of hearing a voice that you always, always loved and missed, and the lyrics are just so deep on an emotional level that um, I... I really, it's what I needed at the time, I think. I didn't necessarily know that, but it opened up something that must have been sitting right under the surface. I mean, you listen to this guy sing what sounds like a 
a regular love song and just a little twist of the lyric um, it can can pull the rug out from under everything, you know? Like there's a line in one of the songs where he says, and I just want to say something true. It's a lie that you love me too. And I was like, God damn, you know? And uh, that might not reflect what I'm going through in my own life, but for some reason, just the vulnerability and the honesty in those songs just mm, tugs on my heartstrings. And I want to give it up to Tony Sly, RIP. I really, uh, I love that guy's music. Great live band. But these these songs, these solo songs are really worth checking out. If you're a fan at all of singer-songwriters or uh, if you're a fan of punk rock music and, and, and you remember No Use from back in the day, I'd really recommend, uh, I, th- I think the... The first album was called 12 Song Program, and the second one was called Sad Bear. And they're both just about 30, 32 minutes long, and I play them together all the time. I just play one after the other. Great listen. So with that said, uh, I'm going to continue with honorable mentions that are things that did come out this year. And we're going to do 10 of those, and we're going to do the uh, official top 10. Um, another quick aside, two of my favorite bands I didn't get to listen to this year, Propagandi had a new album, and The Used had a new album. And I've seen those pop up on other year-end lists. Um, I went to buy both of them at different times, and my local stores didn't have them. So I will pick them up in time. And especially with Propagandi, always working with my favorite producers, Bill Stevenson, Jason Livermore, at The Blasting Room. Um that that makes it even more exciting for me to check out, but I just didn't get around to it. So let's commence with the 2017 honorable mentions here. I'm going to start at the bottom and we're going to move all the way up to through the top 10 to the number one pick. Now, Eminem. I have been a fan of Eminem since I first heard Role Model in my cousin's bedroom in like 1998 or 99 whenever that Slim Shady came out and you know he was a huge influence on me if you listen to my very first solo album in 2008 or the early illusionist stuff you know it was a lot of uh, shock humor and how twisted and gross can you make it and and you know that that really worked with me as an angry teenager and young 20-something. And, you know, me and me and Gradient were playing Slim Shady LP on the Fall Children Tour, driving around, and we were all, like, singing along to it, and then we would, like, catch ourselves, like, oh, my God, what do we... Jesus Christ, like, I remember all the words, but I didn't actually um, just... You know, in my 30s, it's harder to listen to some of that shit and be like, wow, that's a great line. You know, that that it was like a shocking joke. You know, some of that shit was like, Jesus Christ, man, this is foul. But, uh, you know, they're still classic records. Can't take that away. They're clever and they they struck a chord, man, with the zeitgeist. That was the rebellious moment, you know. Dre took what he learned with NWA and what he learned with Death Row. And he applied that and they milked the controversy for all it was worth. And, and those first three Eminem albums 
I say first three, I mean, uh, infinite. I didn't hear until way later, like most of us, but, uh, Slim Shady LP and Marshall Mathers and Eminem show. Those are, those are great albums. And I, I, I still maintain that they're rap classics. And a lot of people have written him off over the years. He's not what he used to be. And, you know, from encore on, it's been, uh, it's been hard to be an Eminem fan. And this new one, continues the style that he started with recovery Uh, it plays very much like recovery in my opinion in that that was the first time where he's not using beats by himself and dre and uh one of those guys the bass brothers i think from the the first couple albums and he was starting to work with like pop producers who were responsible for a lot of those those songs at the time that you like, I remember that song he did with Drake and Kanye uh, forever, I think. And it had those, those really like high pitched poppy snares and all those very, um, uh, if you listen to the production of that song, it just captured, it captures the sonic palette of rap in that time. And then when recovery came out, it had a lot of those traits. It was like for the first time, he wasn't just doing his own thing and and blazing the trail. He was starting to sit at a different place where he was a little unsure of where he fit in everything. And he's starting to actually take influence from what's happening now to try to stay relevant. And getting pop singers on the choruses and things like that. And, you know, the lyrics were still sharp but it's not the same thing when you get this like irreverent, you know, badass couple of bars or a really hard verse and then, you know, fucking Miley Cyrus or somebody. It's not, she wasn't on it, but, you know, you get my point comes in and it just kind of like neuters the song a little bit. Um, I'd almost like to hear remix versions of all those songs with, you know, put a scratch chorus on there and a, hard-ass beat and you know tell me those aren't some of the best verses he ever wrote but this record uh this new one it's really just uh revival is the name it's just it's kind of a rehash i feel like he seems like he's been out of his element for the last decade and still struggling to find his place and it's it's too bad i think that the first track walk on water is phenomenal it's a really honest reflection of how far he's come and yet all of the shackles that his success has weighed him down with, if that makes sense. You know, he is revered for his lyrical ability, but then he's constantly trying to outdo it to keep, you know, relevant. And, you know, every artist wants their new shit to be their best shit, but there's just no and he'll he said this in interviews recently that the rhymes are easier but he's having more of a problem like making sense of where it's going like he can rhyme the same scheme endlessly but like to what end or for what point and it feels like that a lot on the album i think this might be my least favorite of his just in terms of and i i really like some of it i think walk on water is brilliant i think that the last two songs are really strong and uh god there's another one in the middle i'm gonna look this up while i'm talking about it but um 
he he just has a really inconsistent flow to the record. It's kind of back and forth. That song that he did, the uh, more political one that came out where each verse is kind of from a different perspective, I think is really cool. Untouchable was the name of that one. He, um, he, I thought when I first heard it, I was like, man, he's going in like some ice cube shit. Like he's, it wasn't like that Trump freestyle, you know, he's really, uh, going in on some, some hard verses about, you know, the times we live in right now. And I thought it was great. And as it goes on, you know, his perspective shifts with each verse and he did a whole verse from the perspective of a black man. And I, I understand what he was doing. A lot of people felt like it was in bad taste. Um, but I don't necessarily think you could ever expect Eminem to be in good taste. I think we have to just see that he was well-intentioned with what he did there and, um, and try to use his platform to really say something. You know, and a lot of folks said, well, why don't you get another black artist on the track to say, you know, what what they needed to say from that perspective if you didn't have it? And I appreciate that. That's a good point. However, Sky and I were just talking about this on the previous episode of this podcast. How often do you buy a rap album and... He brings on these features of people that you don't listen to and you didn't really want to hear. And so, you know, you're driving around in the car and the feature comes on and that's when you turn it down and talk to your friend. Or that's when, I mean, like, most people pay far less attention to the features than they do to the artists that they actually paid to hear. Or in this case, streamed on their fucking phones because that's the time we live in. But my point is that he knows his fans are going to hear his voice. They're going to listen to his words. And maybe they're not going to like it. But maybe it plants a seed for some change down the road. I don't know. I thought it was a good song. The song Offended. That reminded me of like Rap God or some shit like that. Like if, if there were more songs that were just hard bars like that, this would have been a fantastic album. But really in the end, I would say that there were five songs on this probably that aren't skippable on some level walk on water untouchable offended and then the last two um castle and a rose some really good like throwback to the autobiographical stories that we miss from like you know eminem show era that stuff so revival man i don't know what dre and rick rubin were doing as executive producers but they're not helping him out any. I mean, the the guy's clearly struggling and he wants to cement his place and his legacy and I they got to get rid of the singing shit. I'll even say on the song Offended, which is my favorite song on the album, he does this like nobody likes me, everybody hates me. Going to go eat some worms and it's, you know, this dumb kind of singing thing that he would have done maybe on like encore or something like that, which is not anyone's favorite era of Eminem. And then it ends with, uh, he says, he rhymes it with something like, tell everybody eats my turds. 
And my sense of humor as an Eminem fan, uh, I laughed my ass off when I first heard that, and I thought it was great. But then he uses that in between each verse as the actual chorus of the song. And it's these missteps when he keeps thinking that every song has to have like a pop song structure. The biggest successes of the album are when he deviates from that, like Untouchable or like Castle in a Rose. You know, when you do something more unconventional and just rhyme, you know, like the illusionists used to say, just rhyme. And unfortunately, uh, there's, there's too much other crap happening. So that's my thoughts on Revival. From there, another band that I've been listening to for a long fucking time, and that is Rise Against. Rise Against, I saw them this summer. My whole family actually went up to see them and Thrice on the uh, tour for this new album called Wolves. And they've been one of my favorites since they first came out. I was in, I think, a freshman in high school. And the unraveling was just a, a fantastic fucking album. And um, there was just something magic about those those early Rise Against records, man. They, they tapped into something that wasn't wholly new, but it was entirely original, it felt. And, and they, they really fucking nailed it with those, those first few albums. And over the years, as they cranked out more and more music, um, I kind of got out of them for a little while, and I felt like they had found a formula, whatever that was, um, with their, their tempos and the song structures and the hooks, like, you know, the, the verse would always stop, like the music would stop and the vocal would do this pickup and then the music would come back in and they would do this anthemic, you know, a lot of times a halftime chorus, you know, a big sing along. And it just felt very much the same after a while. And, you know, the first four albums really strong. Um, but hit or miss after that, you know, had some skippers. And, and and with me, I'm the kind of person I want to listen to an album front to back. And so when I start to get out of a band a little bit, it's when they, they give me something that I feel maybe has some skippers on it. So Wolves, I think, is a continuation of that. They wanted to step out and try something different, work with a different producer. But... They have almost every single one of their albums was recorded with Bill Stevenson, Jason Livermore at the Blasting Room. Again, my favorite. And part of the reason they're my favorite is because of the early Rise Against shit. I mean, I heard those and was like, I have never heard a punk man sound this good. This is fucking amazing. And on this new album, they work with somebody else. I'm not familiar with the producer, really. Um, I think he might've worked on like some Queens of the Stone Age or something, but he, um, he, he didn't have that sound, man. It just, uh, it felt like occasionally you'll get a rock band who works with somebody who's not really familiar with their style of music. And this guy was not familiar with their band really at all from what I read. And, you know, they're supposed to have big, powerful drums, you know, and you get this like weak snare that would work better on a fucking funk record or something is like what, what there's no where's the power where's the oomph 
you know, and the vocals are mixed super fucking loud. It's just, it's just done like a pop record. So it has great songs on it. It has things that I like, but uh, overall there was some things about it that distracted me from liking it. Next on the honorable mentions, I will shout out my dude Isid. Uh, we've worked together a number of times before. Done a lot of um, done a lot of shows as well, and um, he's a good friend. And he put out a new album, "How to Fake Your Own Death." And I had him on the podcast. We talked about that earlier. If you want to check out that episode, we had a, a really good talk. It was a really long talk. Actually, we went through his whole career. And he's someone who, who definitely inspired me when I was just starting to uh, step out of Eugene a little bit and kind of make my way into this scene. And with every album, Isid is somebody whose production just constantly improves and evolves and changes. And I really enjoy, I always look forward to whatever his next release is going to be. And I feel... Um, I know this was a very personal record for him, having gone through some some shit in his life. And um, I actually would tie this in with Illogic's album. And I can compare these for different reasons. But um, for me, Isid's production is, uh, is fantastic, and I, and I really enjoyed it. And I will say that... Um, for w whatever reason, just that we have much different styles. I think that um, the the beats on the album got my attention for the most part more than more than the lyrics. Obviously, there's lines that I love, and I'm gonna uh, you know quote uh, when we play shows together and shit that I I really dig. But um, yeah, for the most part, I was I was drawn to the beats. I think this is his best production yet. Um, but uh, I don't know. I'm a little more of a rapidy rapping guy. And with the Logic record, it's called Lucid Logic. And um, with that project, it's a collaboration with Lucid Optics on the production and on a number of the hooks. And I kind of felt uh, the, the same way in the opposite direction in that I love Illogic's lyrics. I think he's one of the most thoughtful and, and thought-provoking lyricists in the genre today. And, um, you know, it was cool hearing him step out and be inspired by doing something different and working with a more melodic style, a more modern style. But uh, honestly, uh, my favorite stuff of his is more stripped down, a little more boom bap, and you know, just let the just let the lyrics shine, man. Just lyrics. So I really like uh, a number of the songs on both of those albums, but I would link them together in that um, you know I kind of liked one thing on them more than I like the other thing on them uh, in general. So I will move on from that to a group that I don't know how many of you guys listen to, but Carnage would be down with this body count. Now, Body Count is Ice-T's metal band. And if that sounds like a joke or a gimmick, I can promise you it's not. It's a genuine thing that they've been around since like 92 or something. And, you know, they make good records. They had a comeback a couple years back called Manslaughter. 
and it was just punishingly fast and pissed off and awesome. And they put up a video like a year or so ago, just of them in the practice space. They were warming up on Slayer, Rain and Blood. And the reaction to that was so good because it was such a fucking spot on perfect cover. Like, I don't think I've ever heard a better Slayer cover. That said, I have heard Slayer do better covers of other people's songs because they're really good at that. But I've never heard anybody do Slayer that fucking good. And uh, went viral. And lo and behold, when their album Bloodlust comes out, it's got that uh, Slayer cover on it. So that was pretty exciting. Now, Manslaughter had a very modern, almost overproduced kind of metal sound. And it was good. It worked for what they were doing. But this new one, they took that and refined it. It's a little bit more dynamic. It's a little bit more clear and not so overcompressed. And just as an engineer, as a producer, I really, really loved the sounds that they got on that album. It's not as super fast-paced the whole time, which is, you know, what I prefer. But it's heavy, and it sounds incredible, and it's just genuine and angry. Um, I like the Jamie Josta feature on there from Hatebreed. I like... um, One thing that they don't get enough credit for and the Ice-T doesn't get enough credit for is that even when he's writing some violent shit that sounds like, you know, if the average person heard it, they'd be like, oh God, I don't want to, this is terrible. I don't want to listen to this content wise. Um, If you listen to the whole song, it always shows the consequence of that kind of living. And the the way that all of those stories end on a bad note, you know? So I, I think that, uh, that is very strong on this album. It's something he's always done, but there was a little more like a couple jokey aspects on manslaughter. Like there's a bitch in the pit talking about like some chick who's kicking all the guy's asses in the crowd, you know? And, uh, this album didn't seem to have, any of the real jokey gimmicky aspects. It was a lot more um, like it really kind of cemented their return, you know, as a, as a serious metal band. The Dave Mustaine intro track was awesome. Um, They just, they just come out swinging. And I thought it was, that was a good album overall. That said, I don't really listen to a lot of metal, so it's not one that I've played over and over again. And part of the way that I judge this list and putting together an order is uh, maybe I liked it a hell of a lot when it came out, but if I haven't listened to it a ton, if it hasn't stayed in rotation, then it's going to move down the list a little bit. Next on my list, I'm going to say Nine Inch Nails. Um, They put out a couple of EPs this year. I wasn't aware of that. I got one of them. It's called Add Violence. And I thought it was really cool. I haven't really... I mean, they've they've been away for years. Reznor hasn't done anything in a long time uh, other than film scores. And a lot of those film scores were done with Atticus Ross. And now I guess he's technically part of Nine Inch Nails. And they made the album together. And to me, it, it definitely feels like they should feel. And it reminds me of like their Year Zero album, I think was 07, 06, which was really the last album of theirs that I really loved kind of before their their 
hiatus. I think they did some instrumentals and then the slip before a hiatus. And yeah, Year Zero was the last like great album, and I would consider this on par with that style. Uh, but it is an EP, and the last track of it is 15 minutes long and does this jarring skip thing, which is like me and Kellen were talking about it. Like he's really into noise and and that kind of music that's just really non-conventional and uh, unconventional. I'm sorry. And, you know, I'm listening to it and I love the riff and I love how they're making it sound nastier and nastier with each repetition as the outro goes on and on. But they do this thing, like as you're bobbing your head to it, they'll put in a split second of silence in between, like it's a bad loop intentionally. And he's like, oh yeah, I love that. That's awesome. And for me, I, it, it doesn't do much for me. Like, okay, that's, that's cool that you want to fuck with people, but like, I, I bought your record. I want to enjoy it. So being a, a record where I have to skip the the end of the last track every time, uh, it, that moves down to honorable mention for sure. Um, one that I enjoyed more than I expected is Paramore. And th- they put out a single that I thought was, uh, well, I just, I just fucking didn't like, um, straight up. And it was very 80s kind of dance pop vibe. And, you know, they're a, they're a great pop punk band. And their last album, the self-titled one, I thought they came into their own and they did something really interesting with it. And it still felt like that band while being more of a unique um statement it was within the genre but it was not the same and this new one after laughter i didn't buy because of that first song um hard times and it uh it surprised me because my wife got it and i was like you know what i i'd like to borrow this and just give it a once over and when that song uh, played on the album, I warmed up to it a little bit. Like in the context of everything, okay, okay. So they probably put that out as a single to say like, yo, this is going to be a little different direction. Get ready for it. Prepare for it. So by then I was a little prepared for it. And I can't listen to punk rock and and hip hop at work because some asshole complained a couple years ago. And... So I got to always look for, for poppy things and mellow things to bring to work. And I, I ended up borrowing that album a shitload of times. And I, I really fucking liked it. And there is one song in particular called Fake Happy in the chorus. Um, and it's a, it's a real feel-good, you know, again, kind of dancey, poppy song. But she said, oh, please don't ask me how I've been. Don't make me play pretend. Uh you know, something, something about, I, I bet everyone is fake happy too. And I so related to that in just hearing that, um, like, okay, first of all, I'm listening to it at work, right? When I'm at work, I work in customer service at my day job and people come to the counter. My goal is to be as efficient and get them in and out as quickly as possible so I can go back to fucking off and reading a comic book or whatever I was doing. Leave me the fuck alone, okay? 
And so when people come in, they're like, hi, how's it going? I answer with, hi, what can I do for you? Okay, right to the point. Not trying to say, oh, fuck you, shut up. I'm not trying to give a fake answer to what you asked me. I'm just trying to get to the point. I really don't like, and if people insist on asking a second or third time, oh, how are you today? How is your day going? I'll be like, look, man, I'm at work. What can I do for you? (laughs) I'm not happy to be pretending to like you. I don't know who you are, and uh, I'm not I'm not into this. I have to be here to keep my lights on, to put out my next record, to whatever, to put new tires on the van, to pay off my debts, okay? So that lyric, listening to it at work, really hit me. And from then on, I was like, this album's the shit. I'm a fan. So you can probably tell my enthusiasm is going up and up as we go upwards into this list. Next, I'm going to say Jay-Z, 444. Now, this is one that I didn't get right away because it was one of those like, uh, oh, I'm going to put out my album on title now. I'm like, well, get the fuck out of here. I'm never going to hear it. So um, I think a week later or something, it came out on CD and there was a deluxe edition and I was happy to oblige. I went and picked that up right away. I've been a big Jay-Z fan for a long time. And uh, I was kind of a closet Jay-Z fan early on. Um, and then and then, really, uh, you know, I owned up to it after a while. I remember when 99 Problems came out, I was like, man, I don't want to admit it, but this mainstream rapper just dropped the best song of the fucking year, you know. And then... Uh, and then after that, you know, eventually that that was my that was my wedding song. We played 99 Problems at our wedding. So I'm a Jay-Z fan and I was looking forward to it. And I don't read the the tabloids. I don't really care about uh what the fuck's going on in their their marriage. I know they're such a big big couple. It's a big deal whatever Beyoncé said on her album. I don't listen to that kind of music. I don't care. It doesn't bother me. But when uh, Jay came out with this album, he spoke from the heart. And this is something different than he's done in a while because, like, Magna Carta was, was all right. It had its moments. Um, I think, actually, I'd kind of like to revisit that album, give it another shot. Um, but, like, Watch the Throne, was I was not feeling that. Um it's it's like all talking about just how we're the best and not necessarily providing any evidence of that. And with this one, it was like Jay-Z's indie rap album, you know? It was underproduced. And there's not a lot of hooks on it. Some of the songs aren't even like fully developed. It just seems like they're they're very much like free writes and he's just sitting down and getting something off his chest. And I think that, that that really works. I think it's really refreshing for somebody of his status at this point in his career to stay in such a, a low-key, vulnerable mode, you know. And the song Story of OJ, I thought had a really, really great video with it. Um, I was just really impressed. It was a breath of fresh air, you know for an artist that I followed a long time to just strip back all the bullshit and like, you know what? This is where I'm at in my life and I'm not trying to impress you. He is remorseful. 
you know, he's also kind of airing out some grievances he has with Kanye and other people. And it was an interesting look behind the curtain. Now, personally, and again, I bought the deluxe with the bonus tracks. So I give it a little bit more length because it's not, it's probably his shortest album. And the bonus tracks are great. I'm glad I got that version. Um, really no complaints about the whole record except the the production. It sounds like... Um, I was excited that No ID was doing the beats. I was looking forward to it. And they're cool. But just like they could have spent a little time just mixing and mastering the thing. Like I don't, I don't understand why they felt the need to like... You can, even if those are your demos, you can polish them up, make them a little more palatable. That's just me. Uh, that's the engineer in me. So, sonically, it wasn't exactly what I wanted, but um, it worked out for what he was trying to say, you know. It wasn't about the sound. It was about the stories. So, you know, it, it works in that context. So, respect to Jay-Z for that. Um, this is kind of funny to rank, uh, right above that, but cast one and figure, and I had cast one on the show earlier as well. If you want to listen to that episode, oh, and a logic, I don't think I mentioned that, but, um, cast one was on the show earlier talking about this record. So our egos don't kill us. And I want to make sure that I've got that title right. Actually, I'm going to double check that right now. And anyway, that's a strange famous release that Sage Francis's label. Yeah, so our egos don't kill us. And I had heard the uh the single he had like a lyric video called Murder Media quite a while back, and it was a hard ass song. And then he put out this like crazy video where he's like getting operated on and buried alive and shit and that was that was insane um came out right with this record and uh man i i really think that it's some of the best uh beats from figure and and rhymes from cast one but but particularly the delivery as well because i know that it was also a very personal album for him but this one it had a hunger because i have his previous album and it's good but this one was such a huge step forward. And it it's one of those, like, this record needed to be made. It, it has a ferocity to it. It has a desperation that really comes through. And, you know, really, I think pretty much every song has... Uh, uh, has some really good shit in it. I I don't think there's a skippable song on the record, man. I, I this was uh this was almost in my top ten. This is my my number one honorable mention right here. So if you haven't checked out Sore Egos Don't Kill Us, I mean it's got hard ass beats and some autobiographical yet still intense fucking raps on it. So shout out to Cast One and Figure and and do check out that album for sure. If you're a hip-hop head, that's probably why you're listening to me. All right. So from here, we're going to get into the real top 10. And I 
I guess I won't overthink it. Let's just go into it. Goldfinger. I've been listening to these guys since like 97. Hang Ups came out. Their lyrics mean a lot to me. Um, I think John Feldman is a great songwriter. is a great producer. Um, he was also my... The only thing I didn't like about the Blink-182 album that came out last year is the way he produced it. It was, it was a little much, a little over the top. A lot of auto-tune, a lot of... Uh, pro tooling that you can hear it's just it's doesn't sound like a real band in a room anymore you know and the new goldfinger is called the knife and it's guilty of that i think um but not quite as bad and i don't mean bad like i didn't love that blink record overall because i really did but um it's definitely in that vein it's produced like a a very modern you know pop record very vocal heavy and auto-tune and stuff. But uh, I think it suits them better. I think it really works for what they're doing. And it starts fast right out of the gate and into their their punkier stuff that's more reminiscent of like, you know, their their very early stuff. Um, there's not quite as much ska on the record, actually. I'd say it's a little more of a pop-punk album. And... It's pretty fucking good, man. For a band that is no longer a band, really, and it's it's kind of a vanity project, I feel like, on some level, for John Feldman, because he's the only original member. When they did this, um, if you want to call it a reunion album or whatever it is, it's been a long fucking time since they've done this. And they've got all new members. And Travis Barker was playing on the drums, and uh, if if you're not a, a punk fan from, from Blink-182, he's the drummer. And John Feldman was a co-writer on a lot of those Blink songs as well on the California album. And so there are many times where I feel like there are songs on this that could have come straight from those sessions and just put Mark Hoppus on it instead. Um, so that was a little odd to me the 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 parallel of like oh well but this could have been on that album from this other band and at the same time it doesn't sound unlike goldfinger so it rides this line it's kind of new territory it's somewhere in between the two bands i don't know i i enjoy it i think it's uh it's really catchy it's got some good fast ass songs um orthodontist girl jesus christ man who uh, like, I think Hope, Hopeless put out this album. I want to say Hopeless Records. Like, who the fuck listened to this whole album? It was like, man, every track, gold. Great job, John. I'm sorry. There's a reason for B-sides, and that one I just can't. I can't. Wow. Orthodontist girl. No thanks. But um, overall, uh, it's, a, it's a strong album. And from a band that uh, I count as one of my very favorites, um, I'm, I'm glad to have him back. And I've I've listened to it quite a bit. Uh, from there, I would say Greg Graffin. He has a new album called Millport. Greg Graffin is the singer of Bad Religion and primary songwriter, along with Brett Gurowitz. And Brett produced this album. And he put out a solo record in 06 called uh, Cold as the Clay. And I really enjoyed that album. It's a little more bluegrass and kind of underproduced it's pretty raw and 
honestly, this one's more up my alley. It's, uh, it's sounds nice and big and it's got a lot of, uh, of, of well thought out harmonies, which is one of bad religions, signature qualities in their, in their punk rock songs. And, you know, to hear more of that in the, uh, the Greg Graffin solo shit was really nice. Um, Cold as the Clay had a number of harmonies, but a lot of time it was just like one person, like a duet kind of thing. And I don't know, something about the mix just didn't, it didn't sell it as well as this one does. This is just a really, really strong album. It's an ode to the music that he grew up on, you know, folk singing stuff from, uh, you know, another era. And it, as someone who I'm a big fan of, Johnny Cash and Bob Dylan and Willie Nelson and and a lot of uh, that kind of music and I think that this is a great um, album in that lineage and there's not there's not a ton of uh, people doing this on a big scale honestly you can go in any coffee house in the world and and still see a great singer songwriter but you know to hear him do this and do it so well. It, this late in his career is, is, is really great. I mean, Bad Religion started in 1980. And, um, and this is a great, great album here in 2017. So props to them. Uh, uh, shout out to uh, Foo Fighters Studio 606, um, where they recorded the album. I thought that was pretty cool. They've got a great uh, uh, bit about that studio in the Sound City documentary. And the old... Uh, Neve console that came from the Sound City Studios when that shut down. Um, Dave Grohl put it in this place. So uh, th- that was cool. The, another one of my favorite artists chose to to make a record there. Um, next on my list, uh, I'm going to talk about a band that you might not have heard of. I'm not sure. They're called Royal Blood. And they're a British band. And... I first heard of them, uh, as weird as another tie-in to the Foo Fighters, I first heard of them as being the opening band on the Foo Fighters tour for, uh, I think it was Sonic Highways, I want to say, for Sonic Highways. They announced they were going on tour, and the support act was Royal Blood, and I'm like, who the fuck is that? And I looked them up, and their album was fucking awesome. And it, they're a two-piece band. And it's bass and vocals and drums. And honestly, I've never like seen them live or watched them. I don't understand how they do what they do. It does not sound like a two-piece band. I mean, it sounds like full-on giant rock guitars. And I, I wonder if the bass player doesn't use a whammy pedal or some kind of octave pedal that allows him to play the bass like a guitar because there are so many layers and like, I just don't fucking understand how two people do this. So uh, it'd be a a band I'm really interested to see in a live setting, but their first album was so good front to back, just some straight rock and roll you know, White Stripes, Queens of the Stone Age kind of shit. And the other day for Christmas, my wife got me their newest album called How Did We Get So Dark? And it picks up right where the last one left off. Um, 
I will incriminate myself by saying uh, I like this band so much that I've sampled them. I won't say where or how, but um, this picks up right where they left off and it's somehow just a little bit more developed. It's a great debut album in that they're giving you all the shit that you loved before and yet they're also giving you some more textures and some more layers and some different kinds of melodies and like an occasional falsetto and just just some different stuff that they didn't do on the last one. So it's it's another step from uh that hard rock, you know, zeppelin shit and uh and coming into their their own version of it but just a really fucking great rock band if you haven't checked out royal blood please do so i'm going to tie that in with the queens of the stone age album because i i really think that they're paired well together um the uh new album is called villains and first thing i looked for was oh shit they got a new album coming out I wonder if John Theodore is still the drummer because he played on their last album and he's the former drummer of the Mars Volta from one of my favorite eras of the Mars Volta too. He played on the Amputecture album and he's just a really great groove drummer. Um, If you're a fan of Rage Against the Machine, you would have heard him on One Day as a Lion, which is Zach De La Rocha's only official post-Rage release Uh, one day as a lion was him and john theodore on some hard-hitting dirty synths and drums rap and shit and that was a great album from like oh seven oh eight but um yeah man john theodore is grooving away on this and i'll admit much like paramore when i put it in the player i went what the fuck like this this doesn't sound, what? Like this, no, this, what? Uh, and I, I immediately opened the booklet and I looked in there and it said produced by Mark Ronson. Now, Mark Ronson is better known as a pop producer. He, he's into that like neo-soul shit, you know, uh, that CeeLo Green record that I really fucking liked, the Amy Winehouse that I really fucking liked, my favorite, Christina Aguilera, uh, that was largely done by DJ Premier and Linda Perry. Uh, Mark Ronson's also on some of the best tracks from that record. Um, and he's got this, like, Barry sax and, like, funk drumming thing that uh, is kind of his motif that's just, just fucking great. And so I'm, I'm hearing this first track from Queens of the Stone Age, and it's not this giant wall of guitar heavy hitting thing that I was expecting from them and it's a little funkier and it's a little groovier and uh and I'm reading this and I see the name Mark Ronson and I put together all of the qualities that he would bring to a record and then I hear the rest of the song through that perspective it's like okay I understand why this is the way that it is now and now I can, now I'm in, I got a foot in the door here. Cause at first it was just like, what is this? I don't understand what this direction and hearing that, um, uh, it really grew on me. It really grew on me. Like by the time it was over, I was like, okay, I think I understand what this is, but I'm going to listen to it a lot of times. Cause I want to digest it. I want to unwrap the layers 
of this record, Villains. And I've been listening to them since Songs for the Deaf. I haven't gotten every single album in that period of time, but but uh, a lot of them. And uh, I really think this holds up. This has been one of my favorites of the year, for sure. I mean, well, it's on the list, clearly, but uh, it's something that's... It's got the signature elements of the band in their really interesting guitar tones and and kind of melodies that are unique to the way that Josh sings. Um, and it, it sounds like the band, uh, but it definitely has an original flavor that doesn't sound like any of their other albums. And, and it works. And a lot of that, I think, uh, rests on John Theodore and the way that that he plays. Because I think it's a groove-centric album. And it plays on his strengths, for the most part. Um, that it's it's not as much a guitar riff and distorted bass kind of album. It's uh, it's grooves and melodies. So, um, kind of a throwback to uh, to an earlier time in rock. So, I would check out Villains if you're at all a fan of the band, or if you've ever thought that uh, the band was maybe heavier than you anticipated, or you thought that uh, there was something that wasn't accessible about them. Because I think that they, this is a broader appeal album without being necessarily a pop album. I don't think they sacrifice anything to get to that uh, accessibility that they've got on this one. So um, next, I'm going to go to hip hop again. And this is an album that I just bought the other day. I have only had a chance to listen to twice. And yet it is smack dab in the middle of my top 10 here. Um, I think that if I had it for longer, I would have ranked it even higher, perhaps. Brother Ali, all the beauty in this whole life. Now, if you were a fan of underground rap in the early 2000s, early to mid-2000s, um, it was hard to ignore Brother Ali. That Shadows on the Sun album is still probably in the top 10 Rhyme Sayers albums ever. And and so many of my favorite artists uh, come from that camp. And so I'm, I'm really trying to uh, say something with that statement. I think that Ali went a little more political over the years. You know, like people love that Uncle Sam goddamn, but then when he made Us and Morning and Dreaming in America, I think was the name um, of the last one. I noticed less and less of my rap friends talking about him. And those are good-ass albums. Um, I I really think, you know, some of the shit he did on the last one with, uh, I think Jake One produced it, was was really refreshing. Because he had done a lot of albums with Ant, and I think they had had their groove, and they were doing their thing. But stepping back and working with a different producer, I think really worked at that point in his career. I think that's what he needed because this one, he's back with Ant and both of them are fucking on fire. And that's not to discredit the last album because it was really good. And I think more people should have heard it or at least more people should have have talked about hearing it because maybe you did hear it and you just didn't say shit, but I thought it was a strong work. Now this, um, 
at the end of the year, I had bought some, you know, some, I bought some Christmas presents at uh, my local record store, CD World, and uh, they had filled up my punch card, so I had a free CD waiting for me, and uh, I uh, went down there, and I had uh, $20 of Christmas money, and I decided to get two albums. I got the Justice League soundtrack by Danny Elfman, because yes, I'm a giant dork, and I love Batman, and I love that fucking movie, and I love Danny Elfman, and he's amazing, and... uh, it's a great score, which I talked about on the Justice League review episode. But I also bought the Brother Ali album. And I was like, shit, I think I missed this entirely. It came out, I think, in the springtime. I'm really behind on this. I went home and I made the flyer for the Illusionist 10th anniversary show that's coming up February 3rd. And I knew what I wanted to do with that. It's going to take some time, be a little bit of a project. It's going to take out all of the old Illusionist flyers and all of the uh, album covers and packaging and spread it all out and make this big collage and take a photograph of it for the background of the flyer. And what I decided to do was uh, come home and put on this new Brother Ali album that I just got and give it a good, solid listen while I'm working on this project. And just the first track, I was so drawn in. He has always been such a fucking, an amazing storyteller. And with this one, um, it, it's a grown-up rap album. And I don't mean in a way of like it's at all neutered or watered down. I mean, this is, this is what I've been looking for. I, I feel like I haven't been moved as much this year by new music and particularly by rap music um last year my list was just bursting at the seams with albums i couldn't get enough of i feel like and this year uh you know two weeks ago when i started making this list in my head i thought there might not be a rap album on my top 10 this year there really might not i i don't know that i've heard anything that really just blew me away or or meant something to me, something that had like some serious repeat value. And that's what I found in this album here. Um, the, the, this song that I did here was Dear Black Son, where he's trying to prepare his son to be received in the world, you know, a world that uh, is afraid of him and that judges him and that does not take the time to know who he is as a person or understand him because of the history in in this country and it's a really beautiful song and the song uncle lucy taught me is an amazing story where he references that track uncle sam goddamn and performing it overseas and um talks about all of this um death to America shit when he's overseas, you know, visiting a mosque and how it kind of freaked him out and he felt like he had to defend America and then flying home to America and then he gets interrogated like a terrorist and um, even after the song is finished, he's, he talks over the beat about how the the TSA guy at the security checkpoint scanned his passport or whatever or his uh, his boarding pass i don't know what it was and he said his his device lit up like a slot machine going off 
And he looked at him like a kid who just opened a toy on Christmas and was like, oh, Brother Ali, do you mind if I bring over some of my other guys so I can train them on uh, how to deal with this situation? Like they were so excited that he had been flagged by, I don't know, Homeland Security or some shit and that they were going to rifle through all of his shit and uh, they had to uh, use him as an example. And the guy was so happy to be able to do that. Um, like the the album is just full of, of good stories. This is a dude who's been telling us great tales from the very first record. And man, I really think that this is going to be regarded as one of his best in time because um, there's so much content. Every song has something that you can take away from it. And it's not in like a, a preachy way. I feel like there's been maybe moments in his career where he's done that a little bit. Um, this is much more introspective and from his own uh, his own perspective, telling his own stories and things that have happened to him that have enriched his life or that have affected him in some way. And it really moved me. I think that um, I, I'm going to enjoy continuing to unravel the, the many layers of this album because with most rap albums, there's so many things you don't catch the first couple times. And um, you know, I played it once that night as I was making the flyer and then I, I put it in the car yesterday morning and as i was you know driving to work as i was driving to dinner that night and things like that trying to give it a good a good listen with nothing else going on to distract me so um i can't say enough good things about it and again it would probably be higher on my list if i had heard it more than twice so brother ali well done flying that rhyme series flag like it deserves to be flown um next up i'm gonna say less than jake Less Than Jake has um, a new EP. And if it was a full-length album, it could possibly be one of their very, very best. Um, I think it just had six or seven songs on it. And it reminds me very much of their latest album, See the Light, which was a really, really strong release. Um and it's got a little bit of borders and boundaries. Uh, but this new one is called Sound the Alarm. And it's also mixed and mastered by Jason Livermore at the Blasting Room, which some of the best uh, Less Than Jake albums have been. I think it starts out strong, and yet every song continues to get better. It's um, the duality of the band, uh, having two lead singers going back and forth between Chris and Roger that really works I think it reminds me again of Borders and Boundaries and a little bit of, of Anthem but kind of that middle era of the band the early early 2000s where it's really catchy it's really heartfelt and the hooks are just incredible R Roger is just proving time and time again that he's one of the best hook writers in in pop punk and ska music. Like it's just great. Um, I don't really have a ton of things to say about them other than it, it holds up with all of their classic material. They're a great live band. They're a great studio band. They have an amazing discography and this is just as good as, as anything they've done. I really believe that. So, uh, check out less than Jake sound the alarm 
And if you haven't heard it, See the Light, their last full length is, is outstanding as well. Um, they're both just, just really great pieces of work in a time where I feel like we're a little bit starved for good ska and uh, pop punk bands. They're uh, somebody who's, who's just never relented in delivering quality music after all these years. The next one is going to surprise you. We're in the top five now. This one's going to be number four. And I didn't want to like this music. And sometimes I'll make a, a judgment and uh, I'll be wrong. And that happens. And I'm, I'm always willing to admit that. I have some guilty pleasures in music sometimes. Uh, as I mentioned, Christina Aguilera, I'm a big, huge fan of hers. Um, I, after the song Beautiful came out, I bought that record just kind of as like, you know, this is, this is good. This is a positive thing. I want to, I want to buy this and support it. And I fell in love with the album. It surprised me. It happened again uh, a few years later with the Dixie Chicks. They had that Not Ready to Make Nice, a big middle finger to the whole, uh, country industry, um, that shunned them and for making some fucking comment in between songs at some show like really and they got blacklisted and so they made this other album with rick rubin and and you know won the all the grammys for it and we're like you know what fuck you we're gonna do our own thing and i thought that was that was a great move and i respected that i bought it just out of solidarity wanted to support and ended up falling in love with that album too um, in fact i got the dixie chicks live DVD and CD set that came out this year. Um, I actually went to a theater screening of it uh, the night that it um, aired. They did a, a worldwide live stream of the of the concert as it was playing um, earlier this year. But got the uh, got the DVD and the the uh, double disc uh, CD for that. Dixie Chicks really enjoyed that, but I don't really count live releases as new releases, as I was just telling Brady. So um, this is another guilty pleasure. And I know I'm stalling here, but uh, <laughs> the album is by Harry Styles. And yeah, yeah. One day my wife comes home and she said, uh, you know, they were playing this song on Pandora uh, that I really liked. And I kept thinking, who is this? It sounds like John Mayer or something. And looked and it was Harry Styles. And I was like, isn't that one of the boy band guys? And she's like, yeah, he was from One Direction. And both of us are like, cringe at the thought. Like, no, I'm not listening to that fucking guy. She's like, no, I, I, I listened to the album on Spotify. And it's actually really good. And I'm like, I I don't know, man. I don't I don't buy that. And uh, I wasn't I wasn't ready. And she goes, uh, she goes, okay. It's like it's like John Mayer. It's like okay, you like Hanson because I, I and I turn her onto that as well. Like um, I did not want to like Hanson. Yes, Mbop that Hanson. Um, I, I don't like the shit from when they're little kids. But uh, over the last I don't know three or four albums. They've uh, some talented ass songwriters. Like we all know, they can sing and play their instruments and whatever. That's cool. 
but like there's some good ass songwriters and I've really grown to love Hanson. We've seen him like four times in concert. And, uh, and she, so she put it to me that way. Like, look, think of it like that. You didn't want to, but they proved you wrong. I'm like, okay. And she's like, I'm going to play you just one song here on my phone. And it's called, uh, sweet. What was it called? Sweet creature. And I'm like, all right. And, uh, listening to it i'm like wait no straight up this sounds like zach hansen like when the drummer sings a song I'm like this sounds like something he would have wrote even some of the vocal tones is a very reminiscent of that and i'm probably turning you off at this point uh, it's not what i mean to do what i'm saying is um uh, it's something that has surprised me before that really hooked me when i gave it a chance and that's what was happening with this and the song sweet creature is just a really beautiful acoustic ballad love song and um, it's stuck in my head right now just as I'm talking about it. And I thought, okay, okay, that's it's a good-ass song. And I didn't want to hear any more. I was like, okay, I'll admit that it's a good-ass song. I don't want to hear it. And she bought the album. And uh, it was just like the Paramore one where after a while I was like, okay, you know what? Just let me borrow it. I'll listen to it. You know, I'll... I'll see what I think. And I borrowed it. And just from track one, I'm like, holy fuck, this is this is some great songwriting. Honestly, it plays more like like a 70s record, like singer-songwriter shit. Like, this is not some overproduced pop star bullshit, man. This is like um like if you like Adele or something, you know, it's like that. Like it's, it, it sounds great, but it's not like overdone and, and all fucked with and, and got some producers, you know, fingerprints on everything. It just, it's just great songs, man. And they're, uh, they're really sweet, beautiful, kind of mellow seventies folk rock songs. And then, and then in the middle, somehow and this is my only beef with the album is that uh, it has a couple like more rocking, like again, kind of seventies rocky uh, songs, maybe a little early eighties, something like that. Um, they're catchy, big guitar-driven songs that um, I feel like are they they keep the momentum going for sure. But it's only ten songs, so I don't think it needed that. I feel like those songs should have kicked off the album. Um, or kind of been separated out a little bit, but there's some like back-to-back rock songs kind of in the second half of the album that uh, I feel like disrupt the flow just a little bit. But that said, they're great songs, and I don't have any qualms with them being on there. So um, great songs, great album, front-to-back, production, vocals, instrumentation, everything. I fucking love this album. And and the other day when Gradient asked me, he's like... uh, I asked him his album of the year and he said 444 and I expected that was that was the answer because I knew he was a big fan of it and he asked mine I said shit I haven't thought about it yet but not, maybe Harry Styles <laughs> and uh, man if you would ask me that a year ago I would have said fuck no get out of here but uh, it really is a great album and a great surprise so um, I would strongly recommend this album to uh, anybody who's a fan of of just good, like, 
singer songwriter shit. Good, I mean, good pop shit, and I mean pop shit like like you know the Brian Wilson term of pop, you know, or the Paul McCartney version of pop, you know, not like some uh, you know One Direction uh, boy band rapping over slick beats and stuff, or I mean singing over slick beats and and auto tune and shit. I'm talking just just real great stripped down music. So I'd recommend it. And a good pairing with that album is my number, well, I don't know. I've gone back and forth on this. I'm going to call it number three right now. And this is John Mayer, The Search for Everything. John Mayer is somebody I also didn't want to like. And I just kind of thought of him as like a love song douche. I didn't like his whole vibe. Um, But that was, you know, in high school, I think. And when Continuum came out in 06, um, actually just before it, just before it, he did the John Mayer Trio album, the Blues Trio with Steve Jordan on drums and Pino Palladino on the bass. And it was straight up some Stevie Ray Vaughan shit. And he slays the guitar. And the rhythm section is uncanny, just fucking monsters. Um, and that was a live album, cut live, and just extraordinary playing. So once I heard that, I was like, oh, this motherfucker can play. Okay. Follow that up immediately with the Continuum album. And I went, and it had a couple of the same songs on it, but like produced album versions. And at first I thought, man, these are a little, little more slick, you know, uh, than, than the live ones that I've grown accustomed to. But that album has some of the best songwriting of the 2000s, straight up. Continuum is fucking amazing. There's a reason that it won the Grammys that year. And um, over the years, he's gone in and out of that singer-songwriter vibe and that blues vibe. Um, He kind of moved to some more rootsy, almost country feel for a couple albums. And this one is kind of a return to form. Um, He's back with Steve Jordan, and Pino Palladino, which I was really happy about. And it's 12 songs. It's really not uh, bloated in any way. One of them's just a little instrumental. And it's uh, it's a really strong album. Like, I would, I would put this probably in my top, top two or three John Mayer albums. I mean, it's, it's up there. I would say Continuum, Paradise Valley, and this one probably. I mean, they're really, really good songs. Um, he is known for being a great guitar player. I don't necessarily think he's appreciated as the lyricist that he is. He's a very insightful, resonant songwriter. Um, I run out of words to describe after an hour of uh, using adjectives for albums, but... Um, He's a tremendous lyricist, and um, uh, I come back to Continuum again. I know I'm not reviewing (laughs) that album, but um, the song Stop This Train, they're talking about, you know, your parents aging and knowing that pretty soon you're going to be navigating this world on your own. I mean, the lyrics in that song are... Or slow dancing in a burning room. I mean, if those songs can't convince you, or belief, what puts a hundred thousand children in the sand? Belief can. Belief can. What puts a folded flag inside his mother's hand? 
belief can. Like that song. I mean, just the first line of it. Is there anyone who ever remembers changing their mind from the pain on a sign? You know, like all this projection and bullshit that we do to get our views out in the world and, and, you know, think we're making our statement like, does any of that shit mean anything, you know? And then at the very, uh, crux of the song, you know, he, he personalizes it in that way of, you know, the kid that went over there believing he was doing the right thing, you know, standing for something. And, uh, you know, what puts a folded flag inside his mother's hand? Belief can Maybe out of the context of the song, you're like, shut the fuck up. I don't care about this. But I'm telling you, brilliant songwriter. And this album holds up with with any of that. The song In the Blood has gotten a lot of great reactions uh, from folks. And I, I think a lot of this is right in line with just his his classic sound. Now, the first track, I saw him on The Tonight Show. I watched The Tonight Show uh, regularly, um, you know, just kind of, I don't watch all of it, but if there's people on, I want to check it out. You know, it's how I heard the new Wu-Tang song. It's how I heard, you know, a number of things. But, um, when John Mayer went on there, my wife and I watched that and we're like, I don't like this song. Uh, he played still feel like your man. And, um, which uh, my wife interpreted, we th- we thought he was saying, still feel like you're mad. Um, but uh, it was different. And it's got this kind of, um, he sings the whole thing in falsetto. It's got this bouncy, dancey kind of thing to it. Uh, wasn't exactly the, the heartfelt John we were looking for. But um, I bought the album and I checked it out. And honestly, I love that fucking song now. It just uh, didn't hit me in that in that live version that very first time. A lot of these albums I'm talking about, man, they threw me for a loop. They weren't what I expected. They just weren't. And this song has beautiful instrumentation, great heartfelt lyrics in the songwriting. Um, I and it's got a little bit of everything. You know, it's got the upbeat pop, like "Still Feel Like Your Man." You know, it's got the uh, the gentle singer-songwriter shit. It's got Roll It On Home. It's kind of a more Paradise Valley, a little bit country-tinged track. Um, and and as usual, just phenomenal uh, players all around. So high marks for The Search for Everything by John Mayer. It says Search for Everything Part 1, I believe, um, unless I'm mistaken. Oh, I think it was... I think it was... Um, uh, a couple of digital EPs. That's what it was. I think he released them in, in groups digitally and then put out the full-length album all together at the end. But um, yeah, really strong piece of work. Apologies if I'm fucking rambling here. We are now to number two. Okay. This was really tough to get up there and narrow it down. But I'm going to give this to Billy Corgan. And the name of this album is is silly. I don't know what it means. It's called OG Lala. And I think that um, he enjoys, I don't think that, I know that, he enjoys fucking with people 
he realized at some point that people thought he was pretentious and he decided to play that up. These are his own words. He said that um, with this new album, it's under the name WPC or William Patrick Corgan. Um, and he said that, uh, you know, when he turned 50 or whatever, he thought that he had maybe outgrown Billy and he wanted to, to just go by William, his, his given name. And he said he, he tried it out. He asked a couple of friends if they would call him that. And people just like, uh, looked at him like, Oh, this fucking guy is so pretentious. And, and so, uh, he's like, Oh, I saw how it irritated people. And so I decided I would actually make my release like that. My full birth name. And I feel like the album title is the same thing. It's like he, I don't know, he does that. His last one, Oceania, for the Smashing Pumpkins, it was like nobody knew how to pronounce it. Um, and that's just his thing. He likes being a dick. He likes fucking with people. But he's a great songwriter. And I think that he proved that on Oceania. That was like 2012. Um, the last Pumpkins album was okay, Monuments to Analogy. Um, but he's really had mixed reviews in the the latter half of his career. And this album, he stepped away from the band and he said that he just wanted to see if he himself can just write great songs without all the bullshit. And it's produced by Rick Rubin. And I think this is a genre where Rick Rubin really excels, unlike you know, working with Eminem has had mixed results. But I think uh, Rick working with, you know, Johnny Cash and, um, you know, the Chili Peppers and some of their mellower, mellower stuff and uh, uh, Jacob Dylan, um, you know, he's he's got a, a strong track record for this style of music. And for Billy Corgan to just sit down and do an entire album that's nothing but acoustic or piano with occasional string accompaniment was really refreshing. Um, my favorite album of anyone of all time is Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. And it's, it's a hard rock album, but laced throughout, there are quite a few beautiful, uh, just breathtaking lullabies i mean they're they're mellow songs it's a gentler side of him and smash pumpkins did an acoustic ep called american gothic in 07 and it's one that i've played to death and actually i have a dvd from that time called uh if it all goes wrong where they were writing some of those songs at shows and you get some live versions of those and there was a couple that weren't on that ep like i always wanted more of that side of him of the acoustic stuff because he is a brilliant songwriter a lot of people they're turned off by his personality um they're turned off by his voice let me tell you this is his best singing ever hands down he's got such control over his voice at this point in his his life in his career um i was astounded um because he's had a different voice. I think he had he must have had vocal lessons in the early to mid 2000s because when they they came back for the reunion in 07 um you know he sounded like a, like himself but a lot of that harshness was gone, a lot of that snarl. 
And some people really have not taken kindly to his later work, as I said, but some of that is his voice. And to me, this is the most restrained and controlled and precise singing that he's ever done. And they're really beautiful songs. I mean, if you were a fan of the band and like uh, the Adore era, that's that's the kind of songwriting I'm talking about, you know, when it opens with To Sheila, that beautiful serenade uh, to his late mother. Things like that are like perfect, you know, if you strip it down just to its acoustic elements or just to listen to him play on a piano just by himself. Um, I can't say enough good things about just the uh, the execution of this album. He's always been... Uh, a songwriter that moves me and this is no exception it's uh, it's only 11 songs you know it's easily digestible it's one that i've played over and over and over again um and it just makes me feel good um i'm i feel like it was a gift it was a gift for the fans so with that i'm going to take you into number one and I I really wrestled with this, but I'm going to give it to the Foo Fighters. And I won't say this is even my favorite Foo Fighters album, but they are one of my favorite bands and been listening to them for 20 years. And again, I base a lot of this on replay value and how much I have, how much time I've spent with each of these albums. And I think all year long, I have listened to this one the most. And I had a really cool thing happen to me. I don't think I've talked about this on the podcast yet, but some time ago, before this album came out, I ran into my friend, Michelle, and we were in uh, Minneapolis. I think it was for Soundset in the springtime. And she told me she just flew in that that day for Soundset. She had gone out to L.A. where her daughter, Sid, had taken us to uh, uh, East West Studios, which is formerly uh, Frank Sinatra's studio uh, from back in the day, the Capitol. It's not the technical Capitol Records studio, but a lot of those uh, uh, famous records were made there and Pet Sounds for Beach Boys and I think Californication and, and just a number of... Uh, classics were made in that that room and we got to tour there on the the first rare form tour i believe is when we went and uh well was it i forget on one of the tours in 2016 i apologize we got to tour the facility with sydney and michelle and it was great so i'm meeting up with michelle and it's may it's memorial day weekend and she says uh, i just flew in from la I was at the Foo Fighters listening party for their new album. It was just for the people at the record label, private listening party. I'm like, holy shit. And Sid hadn't been able to talk about it, but I guess um, she did some uh, assistant engineering on that record and, um, and got to know the band. I thought that was really exciting. Michelle was telling me all about um, hanging out with the band at the party and getting to meet everybody and, and how much they they liked Sid and, and 
uh, you know, said Michelle must have been such a great parent because Sid was so great and all this. And I was so happy for her, but I was insanely jealous because, like I said, I've been listening to them for 20 years, man, ever since uh, Monkey Wrench came out when I was in middle school. And um, so I thought that was amazing, and I was uh, very envious of that position. That was fucking awesome. And uh, especially for Sid, like, uh, almost right out of school. I think she graduated, like, uh, about a year prior to that. Um, get to intern at this nice studio and then uh, got her foot in the door assisting and then got to work on, uh, you know, some great projects like that. So um, I I was just, I was fucking floored by that news. And she goes, yeah, if you don't believe me, um, the first single is called Run. Okay, that was Memorial Day weekend. Sure enough, on like Monday or Tuesday, it was June 1st and Foo Fighters released a video called Run. I'm like, ah, shit. That's right. So that was pretty exciting. And the album came out and it was different. They worked with Greg Kirsten, who uh, they they do bounce around from producer to producer with this band. I think every album they try to make a unique statement. And with this one, the guy had done, I knew his name from uh, working with Adele. And apparently he has a history of doing a lot of pop records and this was his first like rock band now normally as i mentioned with rise against that can be a recipe for disaster it doesn't always work out um occasionally like when thrice made visu you bring in a pop producer and and still maintain the integrity of of your sound the way your instruments sound and get that person to unlock another dimension that was previously missing from your music and i feel like that's what happened here because this guy strikes me as not just a producer, but a composer. And he was able to come up with some string arrangements and some really dense vocal harmonies um, and counter melodies that really complemented the songs. And Dave Grohl got to go in and do his whole Brian Wilson, Freddie Mercury thing and, and just go to town with multi-tracking vocals. And you can tell that he really enjoyed it. And uh, the album starts out with a banger like all of them do like it goes it has the first song is kind of just an intro it's a soft acoustic thing um and then it explodes with these big queen vocals just ah it's fucking shimmering it's beautiful um and it's just a shorty and then it cuts into uh the single run and uh, you know they always open with a hard and fast cut, whether that's the pretender, whether that's doing a little intro and then monkey wrench, or whether that's a little intro and doing, um, uh, fucking, I can't think of the name of it, the second track on in your honor. God damn it. I've covered that song. Um, anyway, they their track record for great opening songs is, is strong and run is a fucking epic. Um, it's a, probably one of the longer songs they've done and it it kicks it off really nicely and from there you get kind of a i won't say mellower but a less aggressive album uh i would say it fits somewhere in like there's nothing left to lose their third album and there's a lot more uh 
they're playing with other dynamics. And this is a, an album that's not afraid to kick in some big guitars, you know, and let the rasp show a little more than that album. Because that one kind of, I feel like, started out uh, with the big rock songs and then really mellowed a lot. And this one's got a, a really good range. And it's got a good balance of just different rock sounds and different sounds from the Foo Fighters body of work. You know, it, it's it's not um, it's not like, oh, we're going to try a different style for this record. It's like um, they kind of use this Greg Kirsten brush to paint over all of their different little styles that they do. I think Dirty Water is a really strong song. Um, Sunday Rain is a, a welcome track because uh, Taylor Hawkins sang one track on the acoustic disc of In Your Honor, and it's great. And he has his own side project, his own band, where he's the front man. And he's got this great uh, classic rock voice, you know. He, he sounds... Uh, you know, he sounds like the who or like uh, the drummer from uh, Queen or something. Like he's just got this natural rasp and this presence to his voice. It's really great. And Sunday Rain, um, he got to front one again. And on top of that, because he was not drumming, Dave didn't play the drums. They got a guest to play the drums. And that guest was Paul McCartney. And I was super happy when I bought the album and I'm listening to the whole thing. And I was like, that, that's a different feel. Because it's kind of a it's, a, it's just a different groove. Like Taylor has a very distinct style. Dave has a very distinct style. And I'm like thumbing through the booklet. I'm like, oh shit, that's Paul McCartney. I like run into the other room, tell my wife, I'm like, holy shit, thank God, Paul. And Paul had played with them uh, at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They did a little Nirvana uh, tribute. And um, they played with them in the Sonic Highway. No, I'm sorry, the Sound City documentary at Studio 606. You know, so they had known him. But I thought it was awesome that they could call in a favor like that. And um, there was long circulating this rumor that uh, Dave made a comment that their next album was going to feature the biggest singer in pop singing backup vocals. And everyone speculated as to who that was and nobody could figure it out. It's like, it's fucking Justin Bieber on their album or whatever. This guy's like the anti-pop, you know, rock star. Like he, uh, you know, who would he get? And it's not credited anywhere. And I was like, well, maybe he was talking about Paul McCartney. And then um, after the album came out, a few days he made some interview and they asked him about it. And he tells a story about Justin Timberlake recording in the same studio and walking by and they ran into each other. And, uh, uh, he's talking about all these cool, like vocal things that he's trying with his new producer. And, uh, Dave is talking about it. And he, I can't remember who asked who, but Justin came in and laid down some vocals and I couldn't figure out what it was um, when I was thumbing through there because it's uncredited. But on second listen, there was uh, a track. I forget, is it La-di-da? It's one of the earlier tracks um, where there's this 
la, 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 like kind of Beatlesy thing going on in the background. And um, it's like a little two or three part harmony, just kind of buried in the mix. And I was like, oh, fuck, that, that's it. That's him. You can tell it doesn't sound like Dave. And, uh, and then the album finishes with this long, slow, uh, it kind of reminds me of Echoes and Silence a little bit, a track that might be on there. Um, but uh, with a triumphant ending on it um, as this really slow-paced song kind of builds up, they hit an open chord on the very last note of the song, you know, with the kick drum and the cymbal crash, just a the concrete and gold. And when that happened, I was listening to it in the car and I had it cranked up pretty loud. And I don't know if they added more guitar layers in that moment or what, but like it is, it was so fucking loud. <laughs> um, it reminded me again of the Beatles with Sergeant Pepper when you listen to the very last track and they do that um, with the pianos all hitting the same chord. And I saw a documentary about Sergeant Pepper recently and they said there was something like 11 pianos or 13 pianos or something being used simultaneously to do that one note and just let it ring forever and ever. And um, they're like riding the fader slightly to make it sound like it's not decaying yet you know and it just rings out endlessly and uh i was wondering when i heard concrete and gold that that finale song if that was actually uh an homage to sergeant pepper in that way because um it was tremendously loud i was like man this is one of the most glorious sounding guitar tracks i've ever heard in my life so um kind of ends mellow but uh like I said, victoriously, you know. And on top of that, I enjoyed the album, but uh, when they came through on tour, normally they would come through Portland, and a couple of times I've driven up there to see them. It's 100 miles away from here. But on this one, they actually played in my hometown, Eugene. And my whole family bought tickets to the show. We all went. Um, me and my wife and my brother, we were down on the floor. My folks were up in the stands. And uh, uh, I had heard that the Foo Fighters were spotted downtown um, earlier that day and that there was some like fans um, kind of congregating, waiting where they had uh, last been seen. And so I went down there that morning and uh, I had breakfast in the hotel restaurant trying to, trying to catch a, a glimpse of somebody. And I brought my concrete and gold CD. I had it slipped in my pocket and, um, uh, Sure enough, Nate Mendel uh, comes walking through the lobby with his bike. And from where I was sitting, I didn't even uh, recognize him because he's wearing his biking clothes. And, and, you know, he's kind of an unassuming guy anyway. But, um, uh, you know, I've never seen him dressed like that. And I was pretty far away, probably 100 feet away. And uh, But I saw a couple of people walk up and I like, take my glasses off, put them back on. I'm like, oh shit, that's Nate. And uh, so luckily I I saw them go up first and I walked over and um, he was very nice and signing everybody's records. And um, most people were just kind of like handing him a pen and not really saying much. And when when I got up to him, I just I t- I told him I've uh, been, been a fan for such a long time. I was glad that they finally came to Eugene and um, 
uh, you know, he signed signed the record, and I I told him, you know, he's a he's a big influence on me as as a bass player. Um, I'm a songwriter, but uh, uh, in my bass playing, is very. Uh, you can hear a lot of Nate and a lot of Mike Durnt from Green Day in in my bass playing, whether it's Judo Pony or whether it's uh, DFS or whatever. And um, Michelle had said something before about like, man, I really think I want I want Dave and those guys to hear Squalor. I want them to hear DFS. I think they'd be they'd get a kick out of that. And that 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 was in my head. And so I thought, you know, I'm gonna bring my CD down there too. And they've been sold out since August. And so I brought, this was in early December. I brought my own personal copy of Squalor. And after uh, Nate signed my CD, I asked them, uh, and I told him he was an influence of mine. I said, um, would, uh, I can't remember how I worded it. I asked them if he would, if he would want, uh, to hear a, a CD of mine. And, and he said, Oh yeah, definitely. I'd, I'd love to hear that. And then, and I handed it to him and, and I was like, yeah, this is my punk rock band. I played all the guitars and the bass on it uh, myself. And I, I, you know, I, I play a P bass. And I, you know, I, I really think, um, you know, you'd enjoy the sound that we got on there. And he grabbed it and he takes a good look at it. And there's still a couple other people around, but I'm basically the end of the line. And he looks at the front cover and he opens it. And he's like, wow, this looks really great. And because obviously it was my, my own copy, so it was open. And, um, I, uh, I told him, uh, I said, that's my personal copy too. It's like, I, I don't, I don't have any of those anymore. So I, I hope you enjoy it. And he looked at me and he smiled. He's like, well, that's a good problem to have, man. Thank you so much. And so I was really happy just to have that connection. And I hope he listened to it and, and enjoyed it just as a person who's really influenced me. And, um, Nate is kind of an unsung hero about that band. Cause, um, I feel like he gets the least amount of, uh, recognition and i've always uh really loved his style of uh of bass playing and his tone um he always has great tone and i went back to my meal and i was really happy and i thought well mission accomplished man if i don't see anybody else i'll be really happy that i have that interaction to remember and then uh i saw chris shiflet the guitar player formerly actually of no use for a name i saw him uh, just walking on the other side of the lobby just uh, by himself. And I, I quickly set down my, my napkin and I grabbed my CD and I walked over there. Um, and I felt bad. The elevator had just opened and he was taking one step as I was like, oh, excuse me, Chris. And he stopped and he was totally uh, gracious and, and, and very kind. And um, uh, I said, I, I don't want to bother you. I just uh, thrilled to meet you guys. And, you know, this will be my third time seeing you. And, um, uh, wonder if you could sign my CD. And he was like, Oh, of course, man. I'm so glad that you're coming to the show. And, um, he's just a very, very nice guy. And I, I wish I had said something about, um, uh, about Tony Sly. That's my only regret about that interaction. But, uh, I, I was keeping him from getting on the elevator. So I didn't want to say there, it was probably only 30 to 60 seconds long that we, that we spoke, but he said, uh, you know, get ready, get ready for a long one tonight. We got a, we got a special show. And so I liked the sound of that. I was very excited because I'd seen him twice before, wanted to see something new. And, um, then I went back to my food and I got the check came and then the waitress disappeared and I was looking and I, I needed to refill the meter again. So I just left my card in the little thing that they give you with the check 
and I ran, I, I jogged down the street to put coins in the meter. And I was jogging, slow down as I get close to it, uh, looked at my phone, see what time it was, how much time I had left, and I was, it was just passed by a couple minutes. And I look up about 20 feet from my uh, van, and Taylor Hawkins, the drummer of the band, is standing right in front of me. And uh, he's, he's standing like five feet from the van in the doorway of this uh, bookstore. And I'm like, oh, my God. I was like, excuse me, Taylor. And he uh, gets a big smile on his face, and he looks and goes, where? And starts, like, looking all around, like, oh, my God, where is he? Um, and and uh, I was like, like, I just, I came out here to feed the meter, my, my van, and uh, here you are. And he, uh, he turns and looks, and he goes, oh, this is your tour van? This is awesome, because it's, you know, it's got all the, the logos and stuff on it, you know, the microphone uh, stuff. So he starts peeking into the tinted windows, and he's like, oh, what do you got set up in here? And, and I was like, oh, it's just got four, you know, captain's chairs that I installed from the junkyard, and, you know, we can fit all of our gear in the back and all, you know, four people in the front. And, and he's like, oh, that's awesome, man. He's like, what kind of music you guys play? And so punk rock, you know, hardcore punk. And uh, he's like, oh, that's that's so cool, man. That's the best. And he was with a friend and a friend was looking through the to the other windows. And he's like, you guys got a loft in here for sleeping or whatever? And I was like, no, I usually just sleep at friends' houses or we get Motel 6 and and... You know, I just thought that was cool that they flipped it and they were taking an interest in me. And, um, and you know, I talked to him for a couple minutes and uh, I asked if he wouldn't mind signing the CD as well. And so I got the three of them uh, to autograph the album. And I I told him, man, as I, he wasn't in the band until the third record. And I got into him on the second one. And I, I, I said, I, you know, excited to see you guys. I've been a a fan since the color and the shape and he goes yeah me too which i thought was funny just knowing their their history and knowing when he joined but uh yeah man all of them were sincerely uh great people seemed genuinely uh happy to interact with fans and sure enough they played for three hours straight and they brought out chris novoselic from nirvana for a guest appearance and so you have dave Chris and Pat Smear from Nirvana all on stage together playing. And um, it was a great fucking show. And, you know, when they did The Sky is the Neighborhood, which is uh, the second single from this new album, I didn't love that song the first time I heard it. But in the context of the album, I love it. And it's really grown on me. And it's really fucking catchy. and gets stuck in my head. And live, it was even better. And they even brought out a three-part... Uh, backup singers, female backup singers to join them. Oh, and on top of that, just a testament to what great guys these are. They played SNL like a few days after that show. And they did The Sky is a Neighborhood. And then, you know, the bands on SNL get two songs. And after Update, their second song, they started with the acoustic version of Everlong. And then they went into a medley of Christmas songs because it was the the last episode before the uh, the break, the SNL break for Christmas. And so they play a couple Christmas songs and they let 
each of their three backup singers sing lead vocals on on SNL. And these are people who have only been in the band for a matter of weeks, probably, to be on this one particular tour, to only come out and back up a couple of songs from the new album, and like not even in the whole show. And they let these guys, or these girls, I'm sorry, sing lead on Saturday Night Live. I thought that was the greatest fucking thing. And so not only is this a really good album, and I had a really great experience meeting them, and they had a really great experience... um, with with my friend Michelle and Sid and uh, uh, and and then this this generous final act of the year with their their backup singers on TV. I just think that um, there's so many reasons, so many positive attributes um, surrounding this album, Concrete and Gold, that I had to give it up for the Foo Fighters. So that is my number one. If you listen to this whole show, I <laughs> I applaud you and uh, I thank you for listening yet again. I promise I will be back with more guests this time. I got a whole list of motherfuckers that I'm going to ask. But uh, for now, I will leave you with probably my biggest song ever, but certainly the biggest one of this year, and that is Wildfire with the beat by Webb the Free Range Human, or currently known as Webb Beats, I should say. You can see us both on stage live at the Illusionist. 10-year anniversary show at the Hi-Fi Music Hall, February 3rd, right here in Eugene. The song is called Wildfire. We're starting to unveil a little bit of our power level. There were hundreds and hundreds of us. We greatly outnumbered the anti-white, anti-American filth. I think that a lot more people are going to die before we're done here, frankly. Why? Because people die every day. We will clear them from the streets forever. You ain't seen nothing yet. What the ever-loving motherfuck is happening here? Spend it up and come across the fuck for half of a year since the first day in office. Widely reported that even little kids are fearing that they might be deported. Cause it happened to their parents or their neighbors are on the news. So bullies in detention know exactly how to target you. And the police have detention at a fever pitch. If you're not paying attention, you better be the fifth. Let's take it back to North Carolina. The white pride pack with a lack of vaginas. Tiki torch, cultural appropriation. Draped in the labor of a third world nation. Masquerading as the purest of heredity. Masturbating enemy, exacerbating enmity. Flying symbols for the simple and parade. Placating insecurity and ignorant charade. Let's take it back to the campaign trail. The tone deaf wildcard set to prevail. He wagered the safety of citizens, media, veteran, beating them rhetoric. Gonna build a wall, gonna ban the Muslims. He made the claim, so we made the assumption that it was part of a strategy. Panda to anger and object depravity. But we object with every breath and a bite. Bet your obfuscating lobbyists, democracy rotting, plotting narcissism incarnate, delusions of grandeur. Nazis are plotting, metastasizing a cancer, make America great again. Powerful tool, mobilizing a sleeper cell, a coward to fools. As far as we can tell, you're Westboro Baptist, but your politics have had a bit more practice. Let's take it back to yes we can. Milestone for the nation, but I guess we can. It seems heaven set, but Box said it best It appears we ain't ready for black presidents Eight years of racist undertone from pundits Telling us the black man is privately funded Busting in protesters for Black Lives Matter Or affirmative action taking back white status as an American As a man, a provider, insidious images Slowly widen the divider 
Let's take it back to South Carolina Arbiter with secession and a harbinger of violence Southern Cross for the runaway slave clause But your heaven-ordained supremacy was saved off Confederacy lost, but a plan was born Couldn't swallow pride, mighty clan was born Giving Whitey a firm hand and purpose again Lynching innocents, bombing, burning of churches again Segregated and aggravated and probably still Beating bodies of brothers like even young Emmett Till Triple K was a product just of the Protestant bill The waning numbers of hating lovers were dropping until They burst the gap with the skinheads They jack up the numbers, now they're back without hood on, attacking the summer, supposed nationalism Folks in trees and regalia, marching stars and bars Oblivious to the statement, conjuring a narrative Feigning preservation, flying the enemy flag of the greatest generation The very thing we fought against, paid with the soldier's life Your patriotic patriarchy's an assault to lies Militarized, cause you gotta find a way to use your stockpile of rifles from Y2K Ever since Obama was coming after your guns You were promised an apocalypse and thought it would come I'm not giving you the wrath of the Bid you, scared you. This little motherfucking snowflake spared you. A passionate pacifist, no anarchist activist, a vanguard of artistic, pragmatic tactics, and I'm standing in the path of self-righteous abominations that body your flag. Confrontation or complication, your Waco fantasy. David correct, you'll be wasting your life till the day of your death. You're saying under your breath, racism is wrong. He's not talking about me. I'm changing the song. But if you wait for a second and hesitation, you'll find we're not debating races, but those who complacently Along with the commander-in-chief Not political ideology Admittedly driven to power By a following of the most universally reviled degenerates All I'm asking is Why are you defending it? The answer is simple If we're willing to concede That our own side was blinded by desire to succeed we didn't need to seek agreement, but they condescend Winning the battle matters more than if they can comprehend Drew a line in the sand, George Bush ultimatums Then wondered why our movement started out of those who hate us Lost significance, parading false equivalence Eviscerating privilege, but the argument is impotent You cry wolf white supremacy So when they see it in the flesh, it isn't even menacing just two sides at war in the streets No relation to either seeing no force to trees Just a wildfire flicker in a billow of smoke Can't surmise from the sidelines if this is a joke Saying not everyone's a Nazi just because you disagree No shit, but how do you not see the different things? Let's take it back to the ratification of the place that I claim And quote without exaggeration that no free Negroes shall come to this state And we shall punish those who harbor them as one and the same False pillar of diversity, Oregon University Whitewash the historic Breitbart perversity I'm taught the blood in your hands or it seems Bite marks on the muzzles made to muffle the screams Are strictly on the other side of the Mississippi Missing the systematic violent complicity Where whip scars have faded, then traded for extradition, exhibition of supposed exceptionalism This sedition isn't partisan No profit to follow You can learn from the past And face a problem tomorrow There's no moral high ground I question your intent If you've been a defendant Supremacist with the First Amendment They're advocating genocide You're saying let it slide Both sides intensify Even if you're dead inside You can empathize At least maybe recognize The danger of normalizing This hate on the rise Protection of free speech Doesn't absorb the abundance Of consequences or repercussions at all Nor does it relinquish the no ramifications are making threats with a clear attempt at the manifestation of ethnic cleansing, eugenics, forthright, holocaust, are out in the street, you don't even want to call it off. Take a stand without hesitation, no matter which box you checked off on voter registration. Cause at first they came for blacks and Jews on the last days, who's left to stand for you?